1: As we continue working through Luke, we do so with a final look at our mini-series, The Crucifixion of Jesus, next on Abounding Grace. The crucifixion, whether alluded to or explicitly reviewed, it commands a majority of scripture. It is important for you and I as believers in Christ to understand the significance of this crucifixion, and so we've taken our time as we have found ourselves surveying Luke. We do so slowing down here in Luke 23, verses 46 through 56. We'll also focus in on Psalm 31 as we focus in on the crucifixion of Jesus, part 4. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner now with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace.
2: Now most people believe these were Jesus' last words, Father, into thy hand I commit my spirit. But they were not. He died right after he said them, but these weren't his last words, nor were these words his farewell statement to his disciples. If you want to get it exact and understand what this statement was, these were the last words spoken by a humiliated Christ. When he rose from the dead, he continued to preach the word of God. But the words, Father, into thy hand I commit my spirit, were the last words of a humiliated Christ. And since his resurrection, he will never, never be humiliated again. These weren't Jesus' dying words in the common sense of those words because Jesus wasn't simply a dying man. He was the dying man and at the same time the living one. Did you ever notice that these words of Jesus just before his death were a quotation from the Old Testament? Jesus was quoting the Bible as he died, and he was quoting Psalm 31 5, which we just read a few minutes ago. Now, why did Jesus quote this particular psalm? Was he simply using this verse to surrender himself to his death and impress us with the certainty of his death? No. Since Jesus never quoted a verse out of context, we must see what the verse meant in the light of Psalm 31. Christ understood his own psalm, of course, better than anyone else. So this last statement of Jesus from the cross is of most profound significance, especially when we understand that what he meant by it is what the psalm meant by it. In the whole psalm itself. So, of course, let's look at Psalm 31. There, the psalmist is not thinking about the certainty of death, where in verse 5 he says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. Rather, the psalmist is asking God to uphold him and sustain his life and protect him as he faces and does battle with his enemies. And throughout the psalm, he is praying that God will hold him up and keep him strong in what he has to do. The enemies he is about to face, the enemies that he is about to defeat, he realizes that it is going to be a tremendous battle. His life will be weakened. His strength will probably fail. His body is going to waste away because of his adversaries. And so he prays that God will strengthen him in the battle that he has to fight. So when he says, into my hands I commit my spirit, David is saying, I am committing myself to you now. I have to face battles that are going to require supernatural strength. In my own strength as a human being, I cannot make it. I will be destroyed and defeated. You've got to hold my life, Lord, in your hands because I have some serious battles that I have to fight yet to defeat your enemies. That is what David meant when he said, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He wasn't surrendering. He wasn't saying, well, Lord, I'm, I'm going to die So into thy hands I commit my spirit. That is not what he meant in Psalm 31. It was right in the middle of life, not near his death. And David says, here and now, I commit my life to you. You've got to hold me up, he says, in the face of my enemies and my possible defeat. So now when Jesus quoted this verse at death, he knew what the whole psalm meant. He knew what David was getting at. And so by a conscious act of faith and focused on the redemptive work that he still had to do, Jesus commends his spirit himself to his Father and his Lord. He knows the enemies are lying in wait for him in the darkness of death, but he assures himself that his life is in the hands of God. And that all the howling threats of his enemies cannot cause him to doubt for a moment that his life will be upheld for a continued service to God, even after death. So in death, Jesus simply goes on the path set before him, committing his life and his spirit to his father to sustain him and protect him in what he has to do after his death. And that means that the actual death of Jesus Christ was not something that came upon him unasked, unexpected. It means that his death was an actual work of faith on his part. It was a commitment of his spirit to the Lord. And what does the word commit mean here? It means a conscious, active assertion of faith that leaves the decisive turn of a person's life in God's hands alone. Lord, I believe you are there. I believe you are my Father and into your hands I commit my spirit. And I'm now, I know I'm going to face more terrifying things than death than any human being has ever experienced. But I know you are going to watch over me. And you are going to deliver me from My enemies. So, by committing himself into God's hands, Jesus was denying the power of his enemies, the power of Satan and of death. He was denying that they had any influence on his life at all. They couldn't control him, they would not determine what would happen next. He would face them and all the fury of hell but they would have no influence over him and they would in no way determine the outcome of his life and his existence and his work. And nor will they yours if you are trusting fully in the work of Christ. But oh, his enemies and Satan and hell thought they had them as they bruised his heel. But Jesus knows that God has determined the course of his life. And now in his death, he knows that his enemies are being humiliated. So with the psalm, Jesus calls out from the cross, and it is as if he said this, I shall simply go on in death and complete my assignment. My eyes are fixed on my Father in heaven who will deliver me from my enemies. Into thy hands I commit myself, Lord, as I continue the work that you have assigned to me. So these words then from the cross are not the dull sounds of death. They are the joyful sound of life. Jesus knows that God will take care of him. That God will not leave his soul in hell, nor allow his flesh to see corruption. Now, that, what that means, beloved, is because Christ prayed this prayer, so may you and I pray this prayer throughout our lives. You don't have to wait until you die. Whenever your enemies approach you or, fa- or you face difficult tasks, you can say this prayer in the midst of life because your Lord prayed it. Lord, I have to face many sorrows, and I feel like my strength and my body is wasting away because of my adversaries, many of whom are my neighbors and family and friends. So right in the midst of conspiracies of men and betrayers, a Christian can say, I commit my life to you, God. I'm just going to go on, Lord. I know what my assigned task is. I know there are going to be after my hide. But I know my life is safe in your hands. You can say it. Because Jesus said it. Now in the record of Jesus' life, it is now time for his human spirit to be torn from his human body, which is what death is and what death does. But in this death, no one took his life from him. He voluntarily laid it down of his own free will. He surrendered himself to death for you and for me. He placed himself once again at the disposal of his Father in heaven as he descended into hell. He perfectly loved God, and he perfectly loved us, his people. And in death, he surrendered himself to the one Who was devastating him? God himself. So in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see the revelation of God's justice and God's grace. God's justice is satisfied. He demanded that sin be punished, and sin was punished in Christ as our substitute on our behalf and in our place. We see the grace of God in this, that God did not, did not have to provide a Savior. God did not have to decide to save sinners. You see, Jesus did not die on the cross to win the grace of God for us. Jesus did not die on the cross so God could start loving us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus didn't die to make it possible for God to love us. God loved us, and that is what moved his heart to send his son to die in our place. He did not have to do it. It was because of His love for us. And also the death of the Lord Jesus Christ was a revelation of the unbending and on and abiding authority of God's law that demanded that payment. Jesus' death took place because the law of God stands eternally. God would not relax the demands of His law even for the sake of His Son. So you can bet, beloved, that he's not going to relax his demands on you and me. But Christ took the consequences of our breaking that law and then ascended to God's right hand and he poured out his Holy Spirit upon us to give us the love and desire for that law that he himself died to satisfy. Thus Jesus bowed his head and he could because he could no longer hold it up, and he breathed his last. Quickly they removed his dead body from the cross, and he was buried in a tomb. Now, we need to talk about some serious theology here to help us understand the death of Jesus more completely and to appreciate it more fully. There is a song and and I actually, I love this song. I love the tune. I love most of the words in this psalm. But there are a couple of phrases that are actually heretical. And I will not sing those words. It goes, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? That is a lie. It's the heresy of the worst sort. God never died. God doesn't die. God cannot die. Whatever happened on that cross, it wasn't the death of God. It was the death of a man who was also God. Now, do you think you understand that in some way? Well, if you do, I want to meet you after church because I don't. I need help with this, but I don't know it perfectly, but I do know God never died. This man, Jesus, as a man died, but his deity did not experience death. Now, the other phrase that is heretical, and by the way, this hymn is not in our hymnal because of these two phrases But the other phrase is, he emptied himself of everything but love. His sovereignty, his omnipotence, his omniscience, he emptied himself of all of his perfections except for one, love. That is definitely heresy as well. Jesus could not be deity without all of his perfections. So, What is the serious theology we need to talk about if we're going to fully understand the person and work of Christ, particularly in his death and in his burial? Well, you need to understand first who Jesus is. He is the mediator of the new covenant. He is the assigned go-between between God and man to do whatever was necessary to reconcile God and sinners. And in that sense, he is our Savior. And in order to be successful as our Savior and our mediator, he had to do three things at one time. He had to die, he had to live, and he had to unify both life and death in his own person. Now, let's talk just a couple of minutes about these things. Why did the mediator, the Savior, have to become a human being? Why couldn't God just come down himself and sure deity and not have to take on human flesh? Well, he had to be a human to die. He had to be a human in order to die a human death. That's why God never dies. Human to die the kind of death demanded of human sinners who offended God. It was man that sinned. And if he was going to be our mediator, Christ had to be a man so he could die a man's death. Hebrews 2 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise partook of the same. For verily he did not take on himself the nature of angels, but he took on himself the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, human beings, that he might be a faithful and merciful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. He had to be human so he could die a human death, because it was humans that sinned against God. Secondly, to be our mediator and to be successful, he had to be God in order to live while he was dying. No mere human being could lay down his life under the sentence of violated law and then take it up again. Jesus said in John 10, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. One of the greatest southern Presbyterian preachers of the past was a man named Robert Webb. And he said this, If Jesus must be human to go down into the grave of punishment, he must be divine to come up out of that grave. If he must be human to go under the law of God, he must be divine to come back from under that law. He must be human to suffer the penalty of sin, and he must be divine in order not to perish eternally in the undertaking, but triumph over death, hell, and the grave unquote. Jesus had to be a man to die for sinners, but no one, not even the humanity of Jesus could bear by itself the full weight of an eternity in hell millions of times over for those for whom he died. And it was his deity that kept him from completely perishing into oblivion under the weight of God's wrath. But thirdly, to be our mediator, Jesus had to be human and divine. God and man in one person to live and to die at one and the same time. He must be human to pay the kind of punishment sinful people deserve, but he must be divine in order to pay the degree of punishment sinners deserve. And he must be God and man in one person to do both at the same time, And in the very same action. Now, that's deep. So let me give you an illustration again by Pastor Robert Webb. And you're going to have to think as you listen to this. It would take a mere finite, a human being, all eternity to pay the penalty of sin in finite installments. It would take an infinite being, like Christ, a limited time to pay the penalty in full. It would take a divine human person to pay that penalty all at once. For a man who could pay but one cent a century to cancel a hundred million debts, it would require an incalculable time. But for a man possessed of thousands of billions of dollars to cancel the debt, it would require but a brief moment of time to draw and sign an adequate check. For a sinner to pay his debt to broken law, hell, and at the same time pay his debt to unbroken law, perfect obedience, would require more time than in all eternity. But to satisfy the punishment the law requires and the the obedience the law requires, Jesus, a divine human person, has only to cry, it is finished and yield up the ghost, and then take up his life and rise from the dead, and the transaction is completed. Oh, the mystery and the magnificence of that one little simple sentence that you and I so often have said so easily, which I am now trying to impress you, is so profound and unfathomable. The next time you say it, don't let it just roll off your lips that easily. Jesus died for me. Well, this brings us to Jesus' burial. This is the last stage in Jesus' humiliation. As God himself watched over his body on the cross so that no one would break his legs. You remember that? I spoke about that a couple of weeks ago. So Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, Mary Magdalene, and another Mary, probably his mother, cared for his body after his death. And then in the grave, God made sure that his body did not suffer decay because that precious body had a future. It had a great purpose.
1: Eight six six five six zero seven is our phone number, 408 You're also welcome to visit our website. Drop us an email when you do, reformedheritage.org. Real simple, reformedheritage.org. A lot of information there about who we are. We would invite you again to stop by, reformedheritage.org. Or if you're writing to us, the address is PMB, Post Mailbox, 402. which means when you link arms with us financially, we're able to continue the ministry here on this station. It's a great way to study God's Word together, isn't it? And we'd love to continue to do so. Would you prayerfully consider how God might be leading you to partner with us? We'd love to hear from you. Again, will not you call 408-866-5607 or reformedheritage.org. Sunday services, by the way, if you'd like to join us, are 2 in the afternoon. We're located at Lone Hill Church, 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org. Again, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. Further information can be found, again, at reformedheritage.org or by calling 408 5607 Thank you for joining us. Until next time, God bless.